0: From Kurtco Media. This
1: is Cars That Matter.
0: Welcome to Cars That Matter. Joining me again are Jim Marietta and Ted Sutton as we continue our conversation from the previous episode. Let's talk about what Original Venice Crew is doing now, because I know when I'd met you, Jim, you had just finished up your first or second competition model. Can you kind of give us a little overview of what that program entails? And then I want to talk about what makes that car special. It's kind of like, in a lot of ways, the car that never was, because you were involved in a very special project back at the shop, working on the independent rear suspension that kind of never really got to spread its wings and fly.
1: So when I got there, of course, I was young, so I ended up working on a Mustang because The other guys wanted to work on the more prominent cars, I would guess. And Ted was the crew chief on the Mustang, although he says he doesn't own up to that, but he was really. (laughs) I worked on that car with Ted and Peter Bryant. Peter, of course, is not with us anymore, but he was a great mechanic fabricator as well. And so we're the ones who did, I would say, probably 90 plus percent, 95 percent of the hands-on work to put that car together. Tested it numerous times at Willow Springs and Riverside so it was really exciting to go through the development part and make all the different changes that they wanted to make, the shock settings and tire pressure and different air ducting to cool things off. You know, that car ran without a fan, so it would overheat when it wasn't moving. Those are the modifications. Back in the day, the testing is how you figured out what you need to do next. You didn't have the computers. We'd go out in the car to overheat, and finally they came in, so Jim, you need to take this radiator out and put in the big radiator from the country squire. So I ended up cutting the core support out to fit the radiator radiator in, and we didn't have any of the fancy tools we had today, so you end up using a hacksaw or something like that to widen the area and put that in.
0: Works just fine, doesn't it?
1: It worked just fine. And then I ended up prior to that, of course, flaring the driver's side fender on that, which is how I got to meet a lot of the guys in the shop because where the inner and outer fender meet, they're tack welded together. So we had to separate those. And again, using the tools that we had in the time, I ended up using a muffler gun. And so you could imagine using a muffler gun with a chisel on it that echoed through the shop. Virtually everybody would come over and go, just what are you doing? Because it was a loud thing.
0: Sounded like the house coming down.
1: Phil Remington comes over and goes, what are you doing? And I told him what I was doing. And he said, well, who told you to use that? And I said, well, forgetting who, I, I mentioned who sent But I said, do, "You know, do you have a better idea? And he goes shrugs his shoulder, walks away. And that was it. We ended up finishing it that way. And then we used a rosebud and a body spoon to pull it out and flare it and shape it. So you've seen a picture of the car, I'm sure, with a number three with a big gray circle around the rear. We put primer on it and that's how we tested it several times until they wanted to paint it and send it off to Green Valley where they won the race. That's where I started doing those kind of things. And then after Ken won the race at Green Valley, the car came back and John Otzbach, who restored the car, who you may or may not know, did an excellent job, but he, on all these development cars, you have to kind of pick a day or a week or a race to restore them to because we modified them so rapidly you couldn't just do a generic, you had to pick a time. So he picked the day that Ken won the race. And if you look at the pictures carefully, you can see that the window, the glass window was pop riveted to the top of the door. So you couldn't put the window down. So when Ken wanted to talk to a scrutineer or get air, he had to open the door. And here again, there was no fan on the car. So the car was always always ran warm. As soon as the car came back, we got it in the shop and Ken came over and he said, the first thing you need to do is take that bloody window off that door. He says... It, it just gets too hot in there one of the first things i did is take the you know as i drilled the popper of itself and took the window off and of course back in the day you don't know any better so you threw the window away right today that would be a classic piece to have in somebody's garage but you know it ended up in the trash <laughs> and then dick Linz, who worked with chuck cantwell came down with the aluminum frames and said uh, jim you know you need to put these in the car and i said oh Okay. And I said, how do you, you have any ideas or blueprints or procedures? And no, just put them in the car. That was a ground up deal, right? Here are the frames, put them in the car. So you figure out what the attachment points are, what you need to do, how to get the window up and down.
0: Use a strap for that.
1: (laughs) Yeah. That was one of those projects where you just go, okay, here we go. And so it took a few days to get that done. And I learned a lot from doing it because it's a try this, see how it works, try that, see how it works, kind of they own. And so the very first time I cut the plexiglass and I put it in the car and I go to use the strap to pull it up, I didn't put a stiffener, so it a jam, right? So they have to take it all apart and then put the stiffener channel at the bottom of the window to get it to go up and down. So that's all the R&D of getting those things done. Those were the kind of things that we did. And then it moved on from there. We did a lot of testing out at Willow. And then when we moved to the airport, they started making the GT350Rs. They kind of lined them up and did them more or less in a row. And for some reason, I'm not sure how that happened. But anyhow, they gave me the project of working with an engineer from Dearborn to put the independent Rear suspension in the car, and this was at the airport in an area that was kind of, as I recall, kind of behind the shop office. And so I worked with this guy for several weeks, and they brought in a IRS unit from a Corvette, and they brought, a, and then they brought in the one that was developed by Ford Adv- which I believe was developed by Ford Advanced Vehicles. Could have been. Uh, it, it depends on who you talk to. But at any rate, it was a Dana 44 centerpiece. Klaus Harnig was the designer, and we put that in the car. And it took several weeks of testing and development to try and get that to work right. In the end, I think it was the corporate accounting department, from what I understand, decided that, to put that in the car was going to be too expensive. And so they kind of nixed it. And of
0: course, there are guys that claim that the solid rear axle was just fine, by the way, thank you very much. It wins races.
1: And they did. And because Ken did a lot of the testing with it. And so Ken was like, the solid axle seems to work fine for me. But we never finished the development on it. As it turns out, At the time, I didn't know this, but as it turns out, Arnig designed it for the independent rear suspension to have a little bit of a toe steer in it. So when they turn left or right to help the lady get around the corner and you went around it, a little toe steer. Well, most race drivers don't need any help getting around the corner. They want to have something that's consistent so they know how things are going to react. Apparently, that never came up or it never came up to me because I was just... I was working on the floor with it. I was an engineer. But I'm not sure that that ever came up in the development. So when we ended up with a number of the original parts from the development of that independent rear suspension, we found out that there was toe steer in there. And so we had to make some geometry changes so that there was no toe steer through the full range of motion, which made the car handle so much better. And now people are happy with it. It turns out, and I think somebody figured that out 50 years ago, the IRS may have been in the car sooner than it was.
0: Well, let's fast forward practically well over 50 years. Today, it'd be 56 years if you do the math to what you guys are actually building now. You talk about how they lined up those original GT350Rs. And what makes your car so fascinating is that it's probably the most interesting and authentic continuation car made for a number of reasons. One of the reasons, not just because it's officially sanctioned and licensed and authorized by Ford, and I understand, by the way, the the guy whose last name happens to be Ford actually initiated that authorization. So this is not just some guy in a cubicle working for the marketing department licensing. This was a real sanctioned authorization for rebuilding this car. Is that right?
1: Because of the various venues that we went to in 15 and 16, I got to meet Henry, who is a real prince of a guy. I presume you may have met him. He's a really nice, young
0: gentleman.
1: Very, very much so. I met him at uh, SEMA, I think it was in 16. And I said, you know, I'd be interested in getting licensed. And he said, look, Jim, he says, as much as I like your car, and I think you're doing a great thing. He says, we have company procedures that I can't go around them. And I said, well, I'm not asking you to do that. I said, if I meet the criteria, that's fine. And if I don't, well, that's fine too. He said, under that set of circumstances, then I'll put together a, a group You can tell us what you're thinking about, and how it goes, and then if you can meet the criteria, that's fine. So that took several months to put all that together. He was very gracious about the way he went about it. On the other hand, he followed the procedures that the company had set up. He was in the meeting when I did my presentation along with Jim Owens and a number of other guys. I did what needed to be done, and that's how that came about. And then subsequent to that, then I went to the Shelby organization and got their approval. And so that's where we're stand with regard to the thirty-six units.
0: Hold on to that thought. We'll be right back after a short break. On medicine, we're still practicing. Join Dr. Stephen Taback and Bill Curtis for real conversations with the medical professionals who have their finger on the pulse of healthcare in the modern world. Available on all your favorite podcasting platforms, produced by Kurtco Media. Welcome back to Cars That Matter. Let's pick up where we left off.
1: When we were working on the cars in 64 and 65, they were brand new cars. So there was no question about the integrity of the shell that we're working with. So 55 years later now, I had chosen, because I think it's the right thing to do, is to buy cars off the street that have a title and the numbers that match the title. That's right. So to make them the way that we want them quality pieces is that the very first thing we do is we take every nut and bolt off the car. There's nothing left in the car at all there's no screws, no nuts, no bolts. Everything is completely, it's down to a shell, just like you'd see in the factory. Then we media blast it. And then we find out what we really have after that.
0: <laughs> you don't know what kind of dog it is until you give it a bath and decide. To exactly.
1: <laughs> right. And so then, you know, we've been surprised several times about when people say it's been completely restored. The things that they use to restore it sometimes are street signs in the floor, if you know what I mean. That's
0: right. Five gallons of Bondo and a couple of TV dinner trays. And you got a fresh restoration.
1: And the heavy-duty undercoating in black always covers up about everything that you'd ever want to find.
0: Multitude of sins.
1: So what we do is we put brand new panels in the car and make it straight, make everything work right, and try and get the gaps as close as we can. Although those cars were never perfect (laughs) when they came off the line. The one headlight door was always just the skew. Just like a 32nd, you could tell it wasn't quite As a friend
0: of mine likes to say, you could see those gaps from a satellite in outer space.
1: So we try and get as close as possible, but it's difficult to tell people today what it was like 50 years ago when this is the way the cars are. But we get them as close as we can and do it right. Some of the cars get over-restored, if you know. In other words, they farm out all the defects because that's what people expect today. I flare, all the cars that we do, I flare both fenders myself. Personally. Personally.
0: It's like getting communion from the public. I mean, this is the real deal.
1: So I flare the fenders. You know, we take pictures of me doing it, but I flare both fenders on all the cars that we do. And then we get them to a point where we like it. And then I'm not a body guy. So we send it out to a body shop to finish it and put it together. But I tell them, At the body shop, I said, I want to leave the rough edges because that's the way it was 55 years ago. We didn't take all the rough edges. You can feel the little scallop with a body wrench, body spoon when you go through it. And I said, I know you can make it perfect, but I don't want it perfect. I want it to be the way it was. And so that's the way that we make it. Not everything in our cars are perfect, but we try and get it as close as we can to the way it was 55 years ago. We've made certain upgrades based on what Peter had suggested and he said he had on the drawing board at the time.
0: Well, now that's where I'm really interested, Jim, is learning what some of those things were and understanding that this car is a continuation car. It's the real deal. It's made by the real guys that built the real ones originally. But it kind of realizes all the visions that, were never quite had an opportunity to see the light of day. Because like you say, I mean, they just kind of whisked Peter off to some project in Europe or something, and then all of a sudden, all these great ideas never got developed.
1: To tie right into Peter being whisked off to Europe, the GT350Rs have that gap between the roof and the window itself. and oh, to That's get an they,
0: eyesore, isn't it, man? Yeah, an and eyesore. to get
1: that gap, you know, they kind of bent the plexiglass to get under the roof. One of the premises that I worked with with Peter is that I'd like to get as close to original as possible. And Peter said, well, that hump was never to be in a window. And I said, well, what do you mean? He says that, you know, that should be a nice flat curve. There's no hump. He says it distorts your rearview mirror and it doesn't look right. And Peter's very particular. And Peter's, in my opinion, at least a great aerodynamicist, the Mustang and the Daytona coupe. I mean, he kind of thinks like air, so to speak. So he said, I'd like to make the window the way it should have been. He said, if the, if I was at the shop when that window came in, I would have sent it back because that's not the way I drew it. So I said, well, Peter, as long as you tell me that it was kind of on your drawing board or you had it in your notes, then that's fine. So he said, no, Jim, that, that, that's the way the window is supposed to be. So we changed the window so it's a, a nice curve and it's the way Peter wanted it from the beginning. The next thing was the front fascia. Peter goes, you know, the front fascia, I was working on different designs for the front fascia because the one that we ended up using didn't make sense. You have the great big gap in the center, the air goes wherever it wants to. And the cooling ducts for the front brakes kind of went through those core support turned 90 degrees, and then we drilled the hole in the fender, turned another 90 degrees to take it back to there. He says, we're lucky we got any air through there. After you do two 90-degree turns with scat tube, you get nothing. So he said, I have a design that I had in mind back then. So he designed the new front fascia on the car, which instead of round, it's rectangular. And the rectangular openings are on the outside of the frame rail. So it goes right down the frame rail and then dumps immediately onto the brakes. No diversion at all. I mean it's the way it should have been done, you know, years ago. The rear brake ducts cooling system, originally they put those ducts on the outside of the car and didn't go anywhere. But Peter said they were originally supposed to actually cool the rear brakes. So we developed the ducting for the rear brakes. We're in Peter's shop in Henderson and we tell Ted we need ducting to take it from the outside scoop back to the rear brake. So Ted starts out with a chalk drawing on the concrete floor in Peter's shop in 2014, 15, just like we would have done at Chelby's with a chalk drawing on a concrete floor with chalk. I love it. Then he makes the cardboard pieces, cuts them out in cardboard and fits them. And once he gets it right, then Ted makes it out of the aluminum sheet. It's an exquisite piece. These are exquisite pieces. So when we go to finish our 98i, normally the cars have a package tray in them that covers up all the innards, if you will. Well, I decided that I wasn't going to put the package tray in 98i because I wanted people to see Ted's handiwork on those brake ducts. Because if you didn't know better, you would think that Ted worked at NASA. I mean, these (laughs) things came out perfect. There's another guy that had worked for Shelby that is now a fabricator that's doing our plenums on our splash guards, the splash guard for the fuel tank.
0: That big punch bowl that lives in the back, man. Exactly. That thing's exactly. big enough. It looks like a Victorian collar on some it, painting exactly. from... And a, so you know, those
1: are hand-cut and acetylene welded pieces. And the guy's name is Jerry Kirkpatrick, and he worked at Shelby's, and he was one of the guys that maintained and made the Cobra drag Dragon snake. He used to drive it and work on it and make fabrications. He is the guy that's making our plenums and our splash guards, and he's doing it with acetylene welding just like we did 50 years ago.
0: See, this is the kind of authenticity that you can't just Invent from scratch. I mean, it's the original guys, the original techniques, the original thoughts. The only improvements are the ones that you envisioned at the time but didn't have the time or budget to actually bring to fruition. To me, it's just incredible. There are a lot of OEMs that are cashing in now on their paths. Certainly, Jaguar with their continuation C type and D type cars. Aston Martin's doing some continuation DB5 gold finger cars from Agent 007. Bentley's doing their blowers. They're kind of coming out with some so-called continuations. But I guarantee you none of the people working on those cars were the ones that were actually building them to begin with. So in my pantheon of continuation cars, the original Venice Crew Shelby GT350 is the real McCoy and is probably the only true genuine continuation car in the world.
1: And then on top of that, because I do keep track of those, the Jaguar and Aston Martin are selling their cars for $1.2 million and the Aston Martin goes for $2.2 million. Our current top price is using a K code shell and all the things that we just talked about including the independent rear suspension it's 350,000 which is only a fraction of the cost of the Jaguar or the S
0: That's right and let's talk about the way it drives now I don't know if guys are going to be using these in sanctioned competition events I imagine some folks would because you don't just pull 350 out of your wallet that's a sizable investment but I imagine a lot of these cars would actually see competition use and when it comes to that I mean is there anything more capable than a first-gen Mustang prepared like this to drive on the track? I mean, what a capable vintage race car these, these things are.
1: They are great. So once we got the independent rear suspension geometry figured out, we got invited to the Shelby Ford Nationals in 2016 at Tulsa. We go to Tulsa and Rick Titus was supposed to be our driver. Jerry Titus is the one who won the championships in 65, 6, and 7, although That's... Ken did a lot of the testing, won the race at Green Valley, Jerry is the one who took it and won the championship with That's right. So his son, Rick, was going to be our driver. So our, our test drivers to get the car sorted out was John Morton and Rick Titus and a couple other local guys, and although Alan didn't do our development work, but Alan Grant has already has driven our cars a couple of times. So, you know, I try and get as many of the original guys as possible involved in what we do. So anyhow, Rick Titus couldn't make it to the race for whatever reason. So the substitute driver is another guy who I believe, you know, by the name of Vince LaViolette, he's the Shelby test driver, the current Shelby test driver in, in Vegas. We roll the car off the, out of the trailer on Saturday and we qualify the car. He qualifies the car third on the grid There's about 19 other cars. And by the way, as Ted will attest a little bit later, it's 115 degrees and 98% humidity.
0: Yeah, it has a way of doing that, doesn't it?
1: (laughs) It it is just, it's, it's brutal. So Sunday, the race comes around. We get ready to go to the grid. And, and Vince is there. I said, Vince, I said, what do you think about the tires? And he looks at the tires and he goes, oh, oh, they're okay. And I said, I have a brand new sticker set of tires in the trailer. No, no, I, I qualified in these. These would be fine. We grid for the race. He goes out. And he wins the race with our car against these other competitors, about 19 other competitors. And so we don't have any champagne. So we're pouring water over everybody's head, right? Because that's all there is. And so we're excited about that, that. That is exact. And Vince pointed this out, actually, to me. That's exactly the qualifying position that Ken did in Green Valley is 50 right? years earlier, qualified third and won the race on Sunday. Is that right? Yeah.
0: What a fantastic replay of history.
1: So, about two weeks later, we go to Mid-Ohio, and I didn't enter the car in the race because I had we were going up to the Henry Ford Museum the week later. And when I get it messed up, so to speak. So, we, he goes out and does hot laps with the car. Now we have, Now we have the new tires on. He comes back in. I said, Well, what are you thinking? He says, You know what, Jim? He says, If we would have put those new tires in at Hallett, I wouldn't have had to work so hard to win that race.
0: <laughs> <laughs> we'll be back in just a moment here on Cars That Matter. Welcome to Life Done Better. Listen to the weekly episodes where supermodel and health coach Jill DeYoung talks to some of the world's most inspiring women in health and wellness. It's the place for all the unicorns who strive to create a life on their own terms. Join us to explore, discover, and create a life done better together. Listen and subscribe from Kurt Co. Media, media for your mind. We're back with Jim Marietta and Ted Sutton. So this is a streetable car. Obviously, it's a trackable car, but it can be registered for the street. Let's talk about the engine. The original, of course, was a 289 that made about 306 horsepower. I don't imagine you let things stand quite there.
1: It depends on who you talk to. The engine guys were, back in in Shelby's day, were always very competitive, and they were great guys. Cecil Bowman was an excellent Engine guy, and then some other guys. That another guy that worked with us. That's a good friend of Ted's. Is uh, Jim O'Leary, who actually was the engine guy on one of the cars in '66 that you know, won the race at Le Mans. And then Jack Hoare was a guy that was at Shelby's, who was engine guy there. I think he was there for about a year or so. And Jack did a lot of work on the 289s. And he indicated to us. We saw Jack at his home in Rolla, Missouri, in '17. I think it was '16 or '17. He claims that with the Webers on the 289. And the way that he configured everything, that he could get close to 400 horsepower yep, out I of that, it. I don't out of it that engine. So our engine, we want to make a little bit more easier to maintain. So we start out with an original 289 block, most of them that come with the cars that we buy. And we take everything out of it, just like we do the car. And I send the block up to one or two engine builders up north, and they magniflux the block make sure everything is in good shape and then everything that goes into the block is brand new
0: mm-hmm.
1: and new crank rods pistons and then we use the aluminum heads some shelby heads and some we do we have ovc heads aluminum heads we use and we use a roller hydraulic cam so we don't have to worry about adjusting the valves every two weeks and on pump gas with one four-barrel. At the crank, we get about 455 horsepower.
0: Boy, that's really the sweet spot, isn't it? That's a nice power to wait. man. those cars never flew like that when they were new.
1: And as you probably have heard or know, 98i kind of came to life in late 14, and then we traveled with it in 15, 16, 17. 98 is because it was Ken Miles' favorite numbers, and right. the stands for independent rear suspension. We have literally... Beat the crap out of that car. We let everybody drive it who wants to drive it. It's been in competition. We took it to Europe in 18, and I was lucky enough to get a couple laps at the Le Mans. Classic, not a race. Well, it turns into a race, as you well know. <laughs> once, once they throw the flag and let you go, That's you're not right. supposed to race, but yeah, you know how it
0: can't, goes. Can't keep a good guy down.
1: And so it's been around quite a bit. And the only thing that we've done is just regular maintenance. Oil, filters, plugs, change brake pads, tires. It's a really nice car to drive, and you don't have to worry about it adjusting the valves every two weeks. Mm-hmm. And it's a streetable car. The cam is in a sweet spot where you don't have to worry about the engine stalling, you know, when you stop at the light and whether or not it's going to start afterwards. And we've worked through all those things because it drives me nuts to have it happen to me. And so I don't want it to happen to anybody else. We updated it for kind of what collectively, what we thought Shelby would go with on a 50 years later. That's right. And so kind I of came up with that thought. Process. And I listen a lot to Peter because Peter was, to a large degree, kind of the number one guy there in the beginning. When Peter suggests A or B, I kind of go with what Peter suggests.
0: What an incredible story. And if somebody wanted to order a new car from you, it, would it be like Henry Ford? You can have any color as long as it's Wimbledon white with the Guardsman blue stripes?
1: Well, we prefer Wimbledon white with the blue stripes because that's the way we built the cars years ago. But that's right. Certain people want blue with a white stripe. Then, you know, that's up to them for that kind of money. I think we can adjust the color scheme, but we prefer the Wimbledon white and the blue stripe.
0: Well, speaking of white and blue, I see that both you guys, Jim and Ted, are wearing some blue and white shirts, and those aren't just any blue and white shirts. They're the original team shirt from the Shelby team, and you guys wore those back in the day, but these look remarkably fresh and new to me. Tell us about your clothing line.
1: It's kind of an Americana thing. The team accomplished so many great things in basically five years. 62 to 67, one of Carol's secretaries had commented in one of the books that working there in that period of time was like being in Camelot. Everything was just, it was a magical time with a bunch of magical people. We won a lot of races, we did a lot of crazy things. Working at Shelby's was a story a day. Famous people coming and going. Peter Bryan, who we worked with on the Mustang, was one of John Surtes' mechanic when Surtees won the races. John Surtees would stop in to say hello to Peter when he was in the country. Dan Gurney had walked by quite a bit, and Bob Bondurant would test some of our cars. All these guys, you know, were just guys coming and going, and and it was a great place. And it, not to mention others that would come and go. And so I think her name was Joan, I believe, but she said, you know, this is like Camelot. It's just a magical, it's a magical place. So one of the things that came about is that there was a guy who you may or may not know, but he was in El Segundo by the name of Mike Holmes had started making those white quilted coats. I was working with Mike to do a vest because the coats are a little bit too heavy for Southern California most of the time. And in doing all that, as it turns out, sadly, Mike had passed away. And so the coat thing kind of came to a halt and I decided that I would work with Mike's widow to see what she wanted to do. And as it turns out, she didn't want to move forward with it really because you didn't have the background. So I kind of took over the coat arrangement along with making vests. And then the more I got into it, I wanted to make one of the things for some reason it was that just struck me as a unique piece is the yellow Goodyear shirt with a tire tread up the back. So above the restrooms at 1042 Princeton is where they used to keep the t-shirts. So if you needed the cobra shirts or the yellow shirts, we just go upstairs and pick up a handful of these t-shirts. And I thought that was so unique that I wanted to do that again. So I ended up buying, I had some of the stuff and Ted had one of the original yellow Goodyear shirts that was made some 56 years ago. I had a, a t-shirt And then both Ted and I had other garments that we, over the years, gave away for various reasons. So I ended up buying originals of all the things that we do. So I have two original t-shirts, and then I ended up buying an original team formal shirt. And I ended up buying Peter Brock's original white championship jacket. So I have at least one, if not two originals of all the different things that we're doing so that I I try and get the measurements right. I try and get the the stitching right. I try and get all the little details right to the extent that I can some 56 years later. The jacket is patterned after Peter's. And all the things we do, at least to this point, are all from the ground up. So what I mean by that is we buy the material in rolls and then have it cut and sewn and fitted without buying anything off the rack. These shirts that Ted and I are wearing They started with a roll of material. The same with the t-shirts. We made our t-shirts by just buying rolls of white cotton material, t-shirt material. And then we, we built our own shirts. And to get the yellow right, we actually dyed the white-yellow to get the right color yellow.
0: This is just insane attention to detail. I love it. The
1: coats are made in two different spots in uh, downtown LA and Long Beach, California. The shirts are made in Long Beach and the t-shirts are made in Orange County.
0: So this is truly homegrown. I love it.
1: It's all manufactured right here, close by, all based on the original material.
0: I'm going to order mine up. How do our listeners find some of these great things?
1: I have two websites. One is ovcmustangs.com and the other is racingdivision.com.
0: So OVC Mustangs is where people can learn about the cars and racingdivision.com is where people can find out about the clothes.
1: Even though this apparel that we're doing is expensive, I understand that. On the other hand, it's all very original and it's all made in the U.S., We're doing our best to keep everything original and take pride in not only what we do today, but the legacy pride that we have for Shelby and Ford and all the guys who made it possible. You don't hear very much about Jack Hoare and Cecil Bowman and those guys. They were incredible guys that made it all work. Although I'm kind of the energy, if you will, behind all this it's not all about me. It, it's really about people like Ted and John Morton and Rick Titus and Alan Grant and Bob Bondurant and all the great things that they did. I was a little piece. I happen to be lucky enough to be in a little piece of it. But I just don't think it's the kind of thing that we can go shrug our shoulders and say, well, let it die. You know, You're sounding like me now. Jim. Yeah, that's kind of the story behind both the cars and the apparel.
0: Thanks to Jim Marietta and Ted Sutton for joining us today on Cars That Matter. Come back next time as we continue to talk about the passions that drive us and the passions we drive. This episode of Cars That Matter was hosted by Robert Ross, produced by Chris Porter, edited by Chris Porter. Theme song by Celeste and Eric Dick. Additional music and sound by Chris Porter. Please like, subscribe, and share this podcast. I'm Robert Ross, and thanks for listening. Kurt Combe Media. Media for your mind.